Once again, I'd like to welcome all of you who are uh, here visiting us today. My name is Jeff, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors of this church. Um, before we begin, allow me to, to read from our scripture text this morning. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 23 through 28. This is the reading of God's word. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I love Halloween. It's the one time of year where it's socially acceptable to dress up, to be whoever you want and not be judged. It's the one time of year where you can show up at your office dressed as Chewbacca and not be kicked out. I love Halloween because it gives some of us the opportunity to express our inner artistry and creativity. You see some of these costumes, you see some of these masks, and you're like, wow, I never knew you were this creative. I love Halloween because... It's the one time of year where I think we are the most neighborly. I live in a neighborhood where all the garages face each other. And so the only time you get to really see your neighbors is when someone comes home. And so there are times where I'm in the garage and I'll see my neighbor's garage open and see the car drive in and I'm walking out prepared to say hi and greet them. But then as soon as they park their car, even before they get out of the car, the garage door closes, and I'm making a U-turn and going back to my garage. But on Halloween, everyone is expecting visitors. They not only greet you with a smile at the door, they even give you a treat, and it kind of gives me a picture of, of what a, a wholesome, good neighborhood looks like. Having said that, as a kid growing up, Halloween, for all of its benefits, was also an occasion for a lot of tomfoolery to happen. In seventh grade, after two to three hours of trick-or-treating, I was in a group of like four of us, we were finally done canvassing the neighborhood and making our way back to my house, where out of nowhere, four masked teenagers jumped us. Uh, they tackled us and pretty much stole our candy. 
Out of the four of us, I was the only one still holding the candy because obviously I looked the most intimidating, right? <laughs> um, but I remember just how sad and discouraged one of my friends just, just cried uh, because it was so humiliating. I remember the following year, I'm with another group of friends and we're walking down the sidewalk and on the other side of the street, there was a pickup truck full of masked teenagers in the back uh, cab. And they were hooping and hollering and they drove past us. And then one of my friends dropped to the ground and I looked and there was blue paint splattered on the side of his head. These guys were shooting frozen paint pellets at us. Now, why is it that Halloween can sometimes bring out the worst in us? Well, I think it's because of the safety that their masks provide. They, they feel that since they're masked, they can do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. And so I talk about masks because depending on its usage, it could be used for good, like protecting us from a virus, or it could be used for evil, like robbing a bank. And I talk about masks because it's at the heart of what Jesus talks about here in Matthew 23. In our passage, Jesus addresses the evil of hypocrisy. Did you know that the Greek word for hypocrisy comes directly from the world of Greek theater? You see, back then, the actors would all wear large masks and play the role that they're supposed to play. And so uh, over time, the Greeks began to apply this word hypocrite and use it figuratively to describe people who are two-faced, to describe people who look one way on the outside but are completely different on the inside. And it is this word that Jesus uses over and over again to call out the religious establishment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In this chapter, he pronounces seven woes. And each woe basically starts the same way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You guys are all masked, two-faced phonies. Unfortunately, the charge of hypocrisy could also be levied today as much as it was in Jesus' day. They say that the biggest reason why people refuse to become Christians is because of Christians. Gandhi once said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. One main reason why people dislike Christians is because of the hypocrisy they see in the church. It doesn't help that seemingly every week a well-known pastor or church is involved in some kind of scandal, some kind of cover-up. It doesn't help when you see these so-called pastors on TV asking for donations so that they can buy their private jet. 
It doesn't help when the church is found guilty covering up sexual abuse or financial mismanagement. It doesn't help that today Christians are often known more for their scorn and judgment rather than their love and grace. That Christians are known more for what they are against rather than what they are for. It doesn't help that so many of us have a lot of talk, but very little walk. If you are someone who sees this hypocrisy, then I sympathize with you because I see it too. But do you know who else sympathizes with you? Jesus. He couldn't stand hypocrisy, and he calls it out here. Due to time limitations, I don't... I can't go over all seven of his woes. We're, still, we're instead going to just go over three of them. Woe number four, five, and six, found in verses 23 through 28. And so let me begin unpacking these woes for you because you'll see that there are different ways we can wear a mask. Let's begin with verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What's going on here? Here, Jesus is calling out the religious establishment for majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. For majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors, he brings specific attention to the practice of tithing. For those of you unfamiliar, tithing is the practice of giving a tenth of all you've earned unto the Lord. It's a command that you find in the Old Testament. And when you read the Old Testament, God commands Israel, I want you to give me a tenth of all your produce, your grain, and your harvest. But the Pharisees and scribes took this command and ran with it. They went the extra mile. Not only did they apply it to their main produce and harvest, they even applied it to the herbs of their garden, the very herbs they used to flavor their food. So you could see them carefully weighing their cumin and setting aside a tenth and giving it to the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus isn't criticizing them for such attention to detail. He actually commends them for their scrupulous obedience to the law. But what he criticizes them for is for overlooking weightier matters of the law. There were large swaths of God's commands that they were completely disregarding as they spend all their time and energy setting aside a tenth of these herbs. They overlooked those who were being oppressed in society. So that when they see the oppression of the poor and how the rich are monopolizing them, they turn the other way. 
All the while they're carefully measuring their herbs, they overlook and ignore the cries of those who are sick and hurting. They see someone hurting and they walk the other direction. John Calvin said that these three virtues, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, sum up and characterize what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll be committed to justice and stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. If you love your neighbor, you will be committed to mercy and extend compassion onto those who are in need. If you love your neighbor, you will be committed to faithfulness, which means faithful to all of God's law and not just picking and choosing those you want to obey. They say that if, you, if your God agrees with everything you do, then you have created God into your own image. If you only selectively obey those commands you want to obey, there's a good chance you're not worshiping God, but yourself. And so this is what Jesus is calling them out for and to help them visualize how ridiculous it is for them to focus on the minors at the exclusion of the majors he presents this hilarious metaphor you're like that person who's straining out a gnat from your soup all the while whole chunks of unclean camel meat is floating in your soup Jesus' point here reminds me of a comedy bit from one of my favorite comedians, uh, Jim Gaffigan. Uh, this is, uh, I'm kind of dating myself, but 10, 15 years ago, because of documentaries like Supersize Me, uh, McDonald's all of a sudden had stigma tied to it. No one wanted to eat at McDonald's. No one wanted to be caught eating at McDonald's. Why? Because it was unhealthy for you. And so Gaffigan will observe how some people kind of snobbishly would say, I would never eat at McDonald's or ever feed my children McDonald's. All the while, they come out of Starbucks every morning with a venti-sized frappuccino, right? All the while, they're consuming gossip magazines and following every detail of the lives of their favorite celebrities because, of course, celebrities don't mind exposing their privacy. Indeed, how many of us have these blind spots where we pride ourselves in obedience in certain things and yet ignore more serious flaws? How many of us condemn and secretly judge people for purchasing plastic bags at the grocery store, and yet we regularly lash out and yell at our kids? How many of us pride ourselves on being good drivers and obeying the traffic laws, but the moment someone cuts us off or follows too close, we flick them off and we yell obscenities at them? How many of us pride ourselves on the good manners that we keep 
and we're annoyed by the coworker who chews too loud, and yet we have no problem joining in the gossip of our coworkers and saying things about someone we wouldn't say in front of their face. How many of us pride ourselves on the excellence we bring to the workplace, on our willingness to go the extra mile, to stay late and work long, hard hours, but the moment our kids wake us up in the middle of the night, the moment they they get into a fight past bedtime hours is the moment we're set off and we yell, I don't have time for this. What is more important? How we look in the office or how we look at home? What is more important? Having good table manners or the way we talk about our neighbors? We're all guilty of majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. But Jesus isn't done. He shows us another way we can wear a mask. In verse 25 and 27, he addresses the fifth and sixth woe, and they pretty much communicate the same principle. In verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Don't you love his use of metaphors? I mean, we can all picture the sparkling, gleaming cup polished on the outside, but the moment you peer in, you see old, rotten, decaying food particles caked on the inside. The dirtiness of the inside makes that cup unusable. If anything, if we had to choose, we prefer to drink out of a cup that's dirty on the outside and clean on the inside. And yet here are these scribes and Pharisees only concerned with how they appear in public. The second metaphor of whitewashed tombstones may be a little less accessible for us, but it's one that Jesus' listeners would definitely have picked up. You see, back then, before the week of Passover, and Passover is a time where hundreds of thousands of Israelites would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the week before Passover, they would all wash the tombstones found in Jerusalem. Why? You see, unlike today where a lot of graves and tombs are all carefully sanctioned off in a certain section of the city, usually called a cemetery, back then, graves and tombs could be found everywhere. People would bury their loved ones in their backyards, their front yard, perhaps in their office. They were everywhere. And over time, boundary lines would disappear, houses would be raised, and people would lose track of where these graves were. And so what happened is when a 
a, a, an Israelite unfamiliar with the city comes touring in, they would accidentally stumble upon one of these graves. And that was a no-no for the Jews because if you touched a grave, it made you unclean. So you can imagine the disappointment of an Israelite who traveled many miles to Jerusalem for Passover to only become unclean and barred from participating in any of the Passover festivities. And so finally, Jerusalem and the leaders said, you know what, we're going to help everyone by whitewashing all the tombs so that they can be easily identifiable to strangers and to those who aren't from around here. And Jesus looks at these whitewashed tombs and says, that's what you guys are. All sparkling clean and white, grabbing the attention of people and yet full of rotten bones on the inside. Elsewhere, we see Jesus calling out the Pharisees and scribes for standing out on street corners and offering up their prayers to the Lord. They find the one location that gets maximum exposure so that as many people can see their pious prayers. They're like peacocks strutting their feathers in a perpetual fashion show of piety. What we discover then is that for the scribes and Pharisees, the mask they wore was a mask of religiosity. They hid behind their religiosity in order to cover up the uncleanness on the inside. Are we any different? Sure, there's probably not too many of us who hide behind a mask of religiosity, but there are other types of masks we hide upon behind, is there not? There are masks that cover up who we really are on the inside. And what's accelerated our mask wearing all the more is the rise of social media. Now we can carefully curate and filter who we project to be on the internet. What are the masks you hide behind? When I look around our city, I see people hiding behind their fancy cars. I see people driving cars so that they, can, they, want, they want to project the image that they are wealthy, that they are successful, that they are cool. I see people hiding behind uh, their well-groomed, well-dressed, nice sunglasses, bags, and shoes. They're hiding behind their beauty, their name brands, their wealth, their good looks, their nice bodies. I see people hiding behind their diplomas and the number of abbreviations after their name. I see people hiding behind their careers and their success. I see people hiding behind their big homes, and I especially see people hiding behind their children. I want you to see happy, healthy, talented, smart, achieving kids, but don't look at me. 
But if I take away your car, your degrees, your careers, your children, your spouse, if I strip all those external realities away, who will I find? Will I find someone struggling with insecurity? Someone with an eating disorder? Will I find someone depressed and anxious? Will I find someone who's just perpetually angry at the world? Will I find someone who's barely able to live each day because their lives feel like they're falling apart? Take away all of these external things. Who are you underneath? I must confess that as a pastor, my temptation is to hide behind my church, is to project what I want you to see is a growing, thriving ministry. What I want you to see are chairs that are full. What I want you to see is is the success of new life. And I think that was an amen from God. (laughs) and yet who am I underneath behind the pulpit or away from the pulpit should I say as you can see what Jesus says about the religious leaders of his day could equally be applied to us we are all guilty of majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors we're all guilty of hiding behind a mask of our own choosing and so the question is having our hypocrisy exposed what will you do how are we to respond now the world says well, you just got to change. Start, stop being duplicitous and start being real. Focus on the majors, not just the minors. Stop hiding behind your masks and be willing to show who you really are. But I guarantee if you go down that path of self-help, you're not going to get very far. After a week or two of trying, you'll likely revert back to the mean. You'll revert back to hiding. Thankfully, Jesus offers another path. In verse 26, he kind of discreetly drops a hint as to how we are to deal with our hypocrisy. In verse 26, he says, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. It's like, what? What are you saying? Here, Jesus is, in a way, departing from the metaphor of a clean cup and talking about a deeper spiritual reality. Here, Jesus is pointing at the source and the solution of our hypocrisy. The reason why we struggle with hypocrisy is because our inside is unclean. Our hearts have been corrupted by sin. All of us here, unless you're a sociopath, all of us here know that we're not perfect. 
We all struggle with guilt and shame. Every Mother's Day, I'm reminded of how I could be a better son. Ah, I don't call or visit my parents as much as I should, and I'm struck with guilt. All of us here, I'm sure, struggle and feel guilt and shame over how we love even our loved ones. Our loved ones are called loved ones for a reason, right? And yet, these loved ones, we fail to love. Let's not even talk about our neighbor, just strangers down the road. If we fail to love our loved ones, how much more everyone else? And we struggle with guilt and shame. I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good wife. I'm not a good mother or a father. And so as we feel this inner angst, we cover up. Sorry, it's the school's technical problems. We cover it up. We hide behind our cars. We hide behind our career success because it's easier to perform in those places than it is at home. But Jesus says, what if I remove that guilt and shame? What if there was a way for me to fix your heart so you were no longer held imprisoned by that shame? Then you'll no longer feel a need to wear a mask. And that's what he's talking about here. You see, Jesus came into this world not to reward those who obey, but to redeem those who disobey. Jesus came not to heal the healthy. He came to heal the sick. He came to live and die for sinners, for hypocrites like you and me. You see, a lot of times when we approach Christianity, we make the mistake of thinking that the Christian God divides the world between those who are good and those who are bad. I will love you if you're good. I will not love you if you're bad, so you better be good. But that's not how our God approaches humanity. The Bible makes it clear that there's no one in the good camp, that everyone is actually bad because of sin. Rather, the way he sees humanity are those who are proud and those who are humble. Those who refuse to believe they're hypocrites and those who agree they are hypocrites. What kind of people were attracted to Jesus and what kind of people was Jesus attracted to? The scum of society, the tax collector, the prostitutes, those whose lives were riddled with sin. They are the ones who loved and clung to Jesus. Who are the ones who hated Jesus? The proud, the self-righteous, the ones who only focused on their masks and focused on their minor obedience. You see, when it comes to the hypocrisy of the church, you might have expected me to defend the church 
and say, no, you've got us all wrong. We're not hypocrites. Perhaps you're surprised to hear that I'm saying, I agree with you. We are hypocrites. But I want you to see that the charge of hypocrisy, far from illegitimizing Christianity, actually affirms and confirms Jesus' mission. The reason why we worship Jesus is because of our hypocrisy, is because we know we need a Savior, is because we know we can't fix ourselves, is because we know we need redemption. And so if you are here this morning and you dare to look inside and the person you see inside is, inside is not someone you're proud of, if you're struggling with who you are underneath, I have good news for you. Jesus loves sinners. He loves to heal those who are sick. And as much as he ministered to broken people back then, he continues to do so today. And so instead of excusing your hypocrisy, pointing at someone who's a worse hypocrite than you, denying your hypocrisy, come to Jesus and confess it and receive his love and forgiveness instead. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the worship team to play a little, but can we spend a few moments in prayer and meditation? I said a lot of hard truths, truths that perhaps we've been trying to avoid for many years, truths that we've tried to cover up and excuse. But can we all ask and ask God to show us our own hypocrisy, to show us where we pride ourselves in minor details and yet totally fail in major ones. Ask God to reveal the different masks that we tend to hide behind. But as we ask God to expose these things, we do not so that we can intentionally feel bad but it's so that we could experience the joy of forgiveness. It's so that we can experience the love of our Savior. And so as you confess your hypocrisy, may you cling to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that flows downhill, that flows towards people who are downtrodden and hard and, and find life hard. So let's all confess our sins and receive the love and grace of our God. And I'll give you an opportunity to pray that, and then I'll close us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, one thing is for sure, we cannot hide from you. We cannot fake you out. 
you see us as we really are. And yet, Lord, instead of condemning us and judging us, you did something we did not expect. You sent your only begotten son to live and die for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you love us as we are. We thank you that in your presence, there's no need to pretend or posture. There's no need to wear a mask. You love us through and through. And now because of Christ, we don't have to be fake. We don't have to perform. We can be ourselves. Lord, if there are any here who have not yet experienced the freedom of taking off their masks, the freedom of being loved by you through and through, would you move their hearts and bring them to yourself this day? And may we as a church community come alongside tired and weary sinners as we rest and receive the forgiveness and love of our God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.